So welcome to WEMcast with me, Owen Walker. I'm back in the room with Dr. Sean Hudson and EMP Ben Cooper. Um, we are here for the second instalment of Stone Cold Truths, and we're going to pick up where we left off. But I just wanted to hand over to Sean initially, just to recap on hypothermia from the last session. Sean, over to you. Are you recording this time? I am recording, Are you recording this. <laughs> so, so let's whiz through it. Let's whiz through uh, pathophysiology and a bit about hypothermia in 20 seconds. So we covered heat loss, heat gain. We covered convection, conduction, radiation, evaporation. We looked at what normal core temperature is. So 36 and a half, 37, you know, depends on time of day and male, female. Uh, and then we looked at hypothermia and we classified it as cold stress, mild, moderate, severe. And we looked at the temperatures. So we looked 35 to 32, 32 to 28, 28 below. There's also now a, a severe, profound hypothermia, which I think is 20 and below. Although I've not seen anybody with a core temperature that low. So I think what we, pro and we looked at predisposition as well. And we looked at autonomic response. What we didn't spend a lot of time on, I think the last time was we didn't really look at field treatment. Um, yeah. So I, I, I did actually watch a lecture the other day. I don't watch that many of them. It's very good. It was by the Trauma Society. Excellent lecture by an anesthetist in uh, South Lakes. And he brought to, the, to me the attention, uh, Willis Medicine actually put together a set of guidelines in 2019, and it's very good reading. And if you look at the list of names of the individuals who were on there, they are the leading lights in cold injuries. So Prof Popsicle or Gordon Giesbrecht was the sort of, he is the, the person to uh, go to if you want information about cold injuries and hypothermia. And in conjunction with the rest of the WMS faculty, they put together a really good paper and there's a fantastic flow chart as well. Um, and there's some bits and bobs that are probably worth, because um, you can all read it, there are bits that are worth probably highlighting. Um, are you able to pop that up, mate? You got it there? Yeah, I do. I'm just going to get the, uh, not sure. Was this, um, Sean, was this the lecture by uh, Les Gordon? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, severe hyper accidental hypothermia lecture by uh, Les Gordon of Langdale Ambleside Mountain Rescue Team. It was on the Wednesday, the 13th of January, wasn't it? Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really good overview, and he highlighted this. He didn't have the, the time to really run through it. I think it sort of brings out uh, a few things that are worth highlighting. Um, and so right at the top there, you've got this this the, i've not heard the 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 description before really which is cold stress because i've often said to people if you get to a subject and they're shivering the likelihood is actually they're not hypothermic mm. you know what they're doing they're, they're doing um uh, thermic, uh sorry shivering thermogenesis they're just they're recognizing from their peripheral uh, thermoreceptors that it's cold and you know their body is autonomically doing something about it to try and avoid them getting cold so you start shivering. It's only when you start to move into mild hypothermia that you get that change in the shivering that I think we discussed a little bit the last time where it comes, it, you, the shivering becomes more vigorous and then it comes in waves. And in a really useful um, a test, because it's really hard to do people's core temperature you know, in the field. Um, you need an esophageal uh, uh, probe, a right atrial um, thermometer or you know, you need an epitimpanic uh, thermometer, which most of us would not 
uh, you know, be have access to. So if somebody's in that mildly hypothermic state, if you get them to actively stop shivering, the majority of people can stop. Uh, it's not permanent, but they'll stop for a short period of time. It's actually a really nice, useful test in the field. Um, moderate hypothermia is, I think we discussed the last time, is that stumbles, fumbles, mumbles, and grumbles. It's, the, it's, it's like coming across somebody who's drunk. And as they obviously, as they move through that, their cognitive function decreases um, as you move into severe profound hypothermia. I think the, 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 the best thing about this uh, flowchart is it's very definitive about CPR. Um, it used to be that if, <clears throat> this is going back some time, that if you felt that you couldn't um, deliver a continuous CPR, then the, the guidelines were don't start. Because if you've got somebody who's profoundly bradycardic and you've got nothing, so we don't have an ultrasound device. I don't have entitled CO2 and I don't have an ECG monitor. So I can't define whether somebody's actually got just a very bradycardic pulse, then just don't start. Um, but what they're, what they're saying is if, if, you, if you think it might be intermittent, then start your CPR. Intermittent CPR doesn't seem to have a, a more detrimental impact than continuous. Uh, the other interesting thing is the potassium. And I, I was particularly interested in that simply because I'd seen a case in Switzerland where, which is actually on video um, and the uh, ICAR, uh, International Committee of Alpine Rescue actually put together a really nice DVD on this. Um, and it was uh, two guys in a state on scene. One was, it was decided that one of them, I think based on the fact that he didn't have a pocket of air in front of his face, they tried, he'd been buried for, uh, certainly over half an hour, I think it was 90 minutes. Um, uh, they did CPR on him for a while. They didn't have monitoring uh, and they shipped him back on the outside of the helicopter to the morgue. Um, uh, one of the, Bruno Jurura went down and they did uh, use knees on him and his potassium was 7.8. And so they brought him back up and they did ECLS on him. And within two weeks, he was back to normal function. So, Potassium is a very interesting marker when, you, when you're in. So let's say you're in a stabilization unit before you can get the ECLS, then uh, potassium is a marker of, uh, of hypoxia or anoxia prior to uh, cardiac arrest. Yeah. And hence, you know, your potassium would be greater than 12. I, they picked 12, I think, because there was a case of somebody with a, a child with a potassium of 11.8. Uh, and there's a question about whether actually that was a, a false reading, because within an hour, I think that potassium had gone down to four or five. Um, but anyway, 12 is in there as, as a guideline. So I think the CPR guidelines in there are, are excellent. Um, yeah, we're looking at it here on the screen and um, you'll be able to see it if you're viewing this on, on the WEM Academy um, um, as, as a video. So it gives treatment protocols um, for 32 to 28 uh, and even like Sean said below 28 and treatment protocols for mild hypothermia as well but let's just also I'm, I'm keen to look at the real world examples of this so actually what we're going to do Ben is just look at a few real world examples of where you've had to aggressively rewarm someone in in the field um because you, you're right this is this gives some really nice definitive cutoffs and actually isn't a complex um algorithm is, is actually quite definitive in its in it in, in its uh, in its origin so it's it's quite easy to follow which is which is good 
So let's just uh, come back to the questions. That's that's a fantastic overview, Sean. Um, so when you're out on the hill, Ben, just according to what Sean's just said from differentials of uh, different cutoffs, um, what are some of the fundamental options that work well to reverse hypothermia out on the field? So some of the fund fundamental to reversing hypothermia is, I think what well, the key thing is to, is to win the weather before the medicine. And obviously the military would say win the fight before winning the medicine. And I think in, in the, for us as a mountain rescuer or a, an expedition medic to, to simply win the weather. And that's easily done by sticking a shelter tent up straight away by banging a shelter tent up, which is waterproof, windproof. You've, you've got that person in a, a safer environment. However, under the COVID guidelines that we are at the moment, we're not tending to use them as a mountain rescue team because of the risk of putting a casual, you have a casualty in there plus several team members, unless it's um, sort of life threatening. So yeah, to win the weather before the medicine, group shelter, um, and again, they come in from size of two person to 12. We've used them up on the polar medicine course for many, many years. You can get a group of, say, say 12 of you in there and you can see the temperature change. People start taking layers off because they're so warm. Um, insulate from the ground, whether that's putting someone, sitting someone on a rucksack, a uh, coiled rope, um, a, a thermarest or a carry mat. Um, quick, quick winds, um, wet for dry. So if the person is mildly hypothermic, like Sean said before, can you stop shivering? Yes, right. Let's take that hat off. Let's put this new uh, dry hat on. Let's take those gloves off and put some mitts on. And I say mitts because mitts are warmer than gloves um, and simple calorific foods, um, hot, and hot sweet drinks um, is always a good one for boosting morale, but getting some, uh, some energy into that into that person do you remember i mean i can think of two examples actually which i think you managed certainly one of them i will not mention uh, the mountain or the person but do you remember you flew in in antarctica to a climber who'd fallen about 100 foot he had reasonably um uh, severe injuries but it was about minus 40 40 when you got there yeah and and you made that decision that actually if we strip him off and, you know, we start managing this trauma in the location that we're in, he's going to die of hypothermia before he certainly die, dies of all yeah. these ruptured muscles and, and fractures that he's got. I remember having just done the basics pre-hospital CAS care course a couple of months beforehand about, it was about scene safety. And it was very much, it, we, we went in, there was avalanche debris, there was crevasse, there was potential Serac fall. So it was very much, a case of, of, of scoop and run. And however, that person had been inside a tent for overnight. Mm -hmm. And instead of doing that sort of primary survey and losing the heat of the tent, we just took the poles out. We took the poles out of the tent and, and wrapped them up in the tent and lift and used it and, and, and lifted him off the floor and onto the, 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 the rescue pulk. So it trapped all that warm air that and, and that was acted as like a vapor barrier bag, really, and then onto a, a vacuum mattress splint, um, and, uh, and and we and we sledged him out. 
I think the other and thing it was, is it was just quick hits, quick wins, yeah. uh, th- th- that make a, a massive difference from the start. Do you remember the guy who fell down the crevasse on um, Vincent? On Vincent. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so I think the learning point. So this chap was down a crevasse, down there for quite some time. The guys on the top were they put a kissy up, which is an emergency shelter. It's an invaluable piece of kit to carry, but no one had really tested one of these at such cold temperatures and uh, they all have or they used to all have a window on the side of them which used to allow you to see out and of course it was so cold that the um whatever they used for this window shattered which just left this huge hole in the side of the, the kissy that they had to sort of hold together so for so for really cold environments we'd always say you know Take take a kissy, which is just a completely single fabric without any windows in. I think there's there's if you read books like um, Ken Gorm John, um, they talk about a school group in the eighties that went up onto the Ken Gorm Plateau, um, and were ended up being benighted, and the following day they were they were all found dead, um, and they were all in individual sleeping bags and individual bivy bags. Or scattered around, and they were actually on top of the the shell, the bothy itself. But there was just so much snow that they they, they thought they'd lost it in in the blizzard. But they were actually found on top of it. Um, and it was that difference between if you've got a group of four, or two, three, four, five, six, twelve people, you're all in the one big tent. You can keep an eye on people. You can watch who's eating, who's not, who's getting stressed, who's not getting stressed. It builds up, uh, boosts morale. Um, you can change people. You get the temperature can get up that hot inside them that you can actually start taking layers off. And if you've got someone who is severely hypothermic and you've made that decision to manage them by removing wet clothes, which is a very difficult decision to make. Um, that you can you can change you can warm that environment up and then you plan methodically how we're going to get a onto b onto c onto d bearing in mind that if you've taken it takes a long time to get severely hypothermic so we're not going to treat them quickly we're going to plan and slowly methodically move that patient from a onto b onto c in one sort of felt in one movement and say having a big group shelter up can can make some massive difference i remember as a kid watching a, a program on one of the scottish mountain rescue teams and they were going into lock arbor on the back of a piston bully and uh, they, they just put one of these group shelters up and they're all sat in the back they're all waiting for the weather to change to go onto the onto onto lock nagar and uh, the, the guys were all sat in the back of on the back of the piston body. There was three people in the cab, but the rest of them were in a shelter tent on the back, just cruising through the, uh, the sort of Balmoral estate, not uh, just happy and pigs and you know what. I think that's nice one of the warm. it's one of the hardest concepts sometimes to get across to people managing casualties with hypothermia. You know, if they don't have other injuries that you need to engage with. If you've got somebody who's just hypothermic, you've got loads of time. Yeah. You know, take your time because these, the, the cardiac instability of these people is a real risk and they'll go comfortably from a, a, a you know, a bradycardic uh, rhythm to AF to VF, uh, you know, really quite easily if you rough them around. Mm-hmm. And so 
cutting the clothes off or taking their clothes off really gently and getting them in. So the other thing in this that WMS um, paper is there's an excellent little diagram about how you wrap somebody. Uh, and so Carolyn and I did our thesis on the uh, uh, hypothermia and um, and the speed of hypothermia that can be induced. So we put loads of students into minus 15 cold chamber and we threw loads of water on them and we put them in a variety of rescue bags. And if there was any way that air could get, wind could get inside, and then we blew, a, uh, I think, a 15 mile an hour wind on them as well. Uh, and, you know, within an hour, core temperatures had dropped. And these guys felt bad, hadn't exercised the day before, down to 35 comfortably within an hour. You have an injured casually. So th this wrapping system, I think, is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, the, I think the other, the interesting thing you said there was, uh, was mitts. And I would always stick a big pair of Dachsteins in my bag with a pair of um, Gore-Tex mitt covers over the top of it and a woolly hat. Because you can't actually uh, alter, uh, well, very little thermo, uh, um, vasoconstriction and vasodilation of your head and face. If you look at thermal images of people in really cold environments, um, then you'll see that they're shut down perfectly. They're you know, peripherally vasoconstrict across the board, except they have these sort of delightful orange or even red faces. So you lose a huge amount of heat from your face. And so get that hat on and get everything wrapped around them. And the other thing is when you talk about drink, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give these guys calories, um, which allows them to generate their own heat. So we want them to start their, their shivering thermogenesis. So they're probably, by the time you get to them, most of these people have been out for a while. They've been walking all day, they're wet, uh, or they've been, they've been doing some sort of activity. You know, 99% of these people, it's either last thing in the evening or it's in the middle of the night. They're absolutely on their chin straps. They've got, they've got no stores. They're, what they need to do is they need to start shivering themselves. So it needs sugar in it. Does it, it helps if it's hot, because they reckon there's a cardiac stability associated with putting a uh, hot liquid in your stomach next to your heart. Um, but if it's cold, it doesn't really matter. You're better having a cold beer than a hot glass of water because that water is really not going to deliver much at all. Although, you know, because of cold diuresis, they are actually relatively dehydrated, a lot of these patients, and they do need, you know, they do need clear fluids. I'm not advocating carrying Budweiser into the hills <laughs> to get to your hypothermic casualties. <laughs> I think that's sometimes... Although I do obviously always carry, like a proper Geordie. Yeah. Carry a four-pack. Yeah. You can't talk about that, I see. That'd be funny, lad. I want any. <laughs> and a canny bag of tuna. I made for tuna at Claremont Mountain. <laughs> yeah. But I think from a, from a, like a, a lay, from a rescuer's point of view, it's often you arrive on scene, you're, you're hot, you're sweaty, you've arrived there and you think, well, if I'm hot and sweaty, the person I'm looking after will be the same. And I think it's just you need to get that out of your head that you just be a little bit firm. They often say, oh, I'm, I'm all right, I'm okay, I don't need, I'm, I'm warm enough. But actually, you just need to be that bit firm and say, well, I'm just going to put this, let's put this, put this around you for a bit. We're just going to put this group shelter around you. We're just going to do this. We're just going to do this. We're just going to take that cold hat off you and put a, a warm one on. We're just going to put some gloves on you and just be that just firm, assertive. We're just going to do this rather than let that person who often think, well, the rescuers are here. I'm all right now. But let's see you as a rescuer will be hot. You'll be sweaty. Uh, 
you, and that's this, a great that's a great um, thing to to remember actually because like i said we we all approach these with our own biases that you write that the, the patient can't be that cold because surely it's not that cold but you're right the bias is you've just been um, tramping up the hill or indeed um, over, over a, a glacier uh, ben could you just speak to a couple of things really could you speak to a time when you've had to aggressively rewarm someone and how you did it but could you also speak to i believe you did you lose someone in a snow hole one time when it snowed heavily oh, and okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the, the, the last time i aggressively treated someone for hypothermia was probably funny enough it, it's on this on the sidelines of the football when both my children play football and um and you get some horrible days and there's some days I've, I've worn more kit on the sideline than I had than I had on last time I went to the South Pole is the weather's that desperate and the kids come off they're hot they're sweaty and again you just need to be a little bit more aggressive and firm just put this jacket on and they're like oh I can't be bothered and it's like no just do this and even the coaches I've had to aggressively treat one of the coaches once you just couldn't be bothered you had that no, I'm all right. And then before I know it, I'm like hat on, zipping his coat up and then drink this, eat that. And it, and it made a huge difference. But I remember there was one of the um, the courses uh, um, up in uh, up in Arctic Norway. Um, and it was an amazing, um, it was about minus 27. It was a crystal clear night. It was absolutely fantastic. And we left the building and we were all spread out. We had faculty, front, me. Uh, middle and back and then someone roaming on a skidoo and every, it's it's hard to tell people be bold start off cold but they always get the down jackets on they get hats on they get gloves on so we always put a stop in very early on to sort of to wean those people out to get those down jackets off um, to get to just to enjoy the temperature really and not not to sweat and um, we skied across this across this several fields um, through the woods and there's a little bit of a, um, a climb um, again it was at the bottom of the climb we'll meet and we'll stop at the top because it, it does take it out of people fresh on cross-country skis and we got to the top through the woods and um, the th you're on this huge plateau and the sky just turned green with the northern lights and it was just unbelievable to the extent that the, the, the northern lights were that bright that the snow started turning green and it was just it was it was amazing and anyway we, we continued skiing on for about another hour to the to the camp and where we sort of pre-warned the students when we get into camp there's three Norwegian uh, military tents each one's got a stove in them so they're nice and warm inside big nice big foam mattress and uh, foam sort of floors and deer skins I remember saying to the students right when you arrive in camp just be careful because as you go through the door, there's a little bit of a step and the stove's in front of you and the stove pipe's really hot. And um, so we arrived in camp and the next thing you heard is just, ah, ah. And I said, well, so I skied across and I said, what's up? He says, do you remember you said, don't trip over that mat? I went, yeah. So well, I've just tripped over it. And I said, well, what do you do? And I said, I put my hand on the stove pipe and you got, you got quite nasty burns. And, and then I turned to see one of the instructors sort of dragging a body across the, the camp. And I thought, bloody hell, what's going on? And this, this person collapsed on her skis. So I, I left the, the, the burnt hand with um, 
someone to, to manage. I went across and we got this uh, this person into a tent and uh, she was just shivering violently, violently. And um, and the, I put my hand down, down the back and she was cold and cold to touch, but all her clothing was just sweaty, wet through. And um, so we've got, a, we, we, we had a, obviously a situation to manage. Um, and so we, so we got this person into, 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 the, into the faculty tent, nice and warm in there, cranked the heating up a little bit more, um, got this person out of the, 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 the uh, clothes. And obviously this person was uh, female. We had an all male faculty. So we ended up having to get someone into to sort of chaperone what we were doing. Um, and obviously we've got one person who's hypothermic so we had to think, well, there's potentially others could be the same. So one of the faculty nipped out and did a complete check on every single uh, student while we sort of went, to, we planned what we were going to do. So we got sleeping hurt, sleeping bag out and gave it a really good few wafts just to loft it up. And then we put that in the middle of a, uh, a blizzard bag um, all clothes came off um, and, and fresh uh, thermal top and bottoms, hat, mitts, and then we zipped into the, into the, into the sleeping bag um, and we started to then, there's a little bit of a hand-eye coordination um, and we, we were started to feed her with, um, well, I had a bag of M&Ms, a family bag of M&Ms, a family bag of minstrels and a family bag of jelly babies. This person went through all three bags and a litre of uh, Norwegian military sort of sugary hot rye beaner. No tongue-tastics? No, 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 there's no tongue-tastics. Um, but she wasn't, she would say she was an M&M positive jelly baby. And, uh, Do you know how to read the blue ones? And then, so this, I remember everyone else sort of went off to sleep and I sat up for two hours watching this person. Uh, I, I, just, I, just could, I just couldn't sleep. Um, I had sort of a job to do really. And, um, and after about two hours, this person suddenly sort of came around and started violently, really violently shivering. And this lasted for about 15, 20 minutes. Um, and then just went off to, went off, person ate some more, um, drank some more, um, and then went off to sleep. And then woke up about sort of five, um, and then just got up. It was bizarre, got up, went outside, had a wee, came back in, got back inside a, a sleeping bag and blizzard bag, and then went, went off to sleep. And then in the morning, um, she woke up and she sort of went, she looked around and went, why am I in the Why am I in the faculty tent? <laughs> what um, What happened? And no idea. Um, and wow, wow. the following night, um, she then slept out in a snow hole, which was um, like really sort of admirer for that because she, she had a big sort of potentially big scare the night before. But there was a it was a, a the year before I was up there and it was it was one of the most violent storms of Norwegian history at the time. They were evacuating islands in the Finnmark area with houses on because the tide was going to be that severe. 
um, that they were going, there was, there was a potential of losing houses. And I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning. Can I hear this? Psst, psst, psst. And there was snow was drip was coming in through the chimney on the stove and landing on the stove, which was making it sort of just, just burst. And my feet were slightly cold because and snow had just blown through the tent. And I remember saying to um, old, old Sundeep Dillon, so I'm just going to go and check on the kids. And I, and I looked out the tent and I could I could just see the three snow holes that we'd, we'd put, um, well, the, the markings of them. No, I could only see two of the three, that was it. So I went, I said this Sunday, I'll be back in like half an hour, 15, yeah, 15 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, I'm just going to the snow hole just to check on everyone because the snow was a huge, massive, massive storm. And I went to the first tent and I put me put me went down the tunnel and up into the snow hole and uh, and he just shook Andy oh bless him Andy Levers um, his his feet and just and he woke up and said oh there's a huge storm kicked off because when you're inside a snow hole they're so quiet you can't hear a thing outside and the warm and the quiet and he's and I and I, uh, I took the snow shovel in so that if it did fill up they could they were able to um, dig themselves out so he was fine went to the second one again. Just they, they were all fast asleep, woke one of them up and said, look, I've brought everything in. Just be aware there's a massive storm out kicking out outside and uh, uh, and just yeah, the snow shovels there just in case. And I couldn't find the third snow hole. And I was digging around, probing around, digging around, probing around, could not find it anywhere. And I'm just thinking I've got four students under my supervision are in a snow hole and I can't find them because and what am I going to do? And that was like, it was one of those sort of cold brown moments. And I, then I, <laughs> I tripped over um, a, a, a shovel. So I thought, right, this is where the entrance is. And I dug and I dug and I dug for about, for about two meters and eventually punched and it was just darkness. And we told the students to leave a candle on inside the snow holes, just so it just generates a little bit of light. And, um, and, and you know, there's any oxygen. Yeah, exactly. So uh, then it was just dark, and I mentioned my, my shovel just went into the snow and then punched through, and it was just darkness. And I remember shouting to the, the people inside the names, and uh, I was probably, probably scared. <laughs> I basically have four dead students. And I grabbed the first sleeping bag and shook it. And um, this girl should have just sat up and she went, Morning, Ben. You okay and I was like yeah I am yeah brilliant just let you know very calmly um there's a storm kicked off outside I've just brought all your kit in and I've dug you a fresh tunnel and uh just go back to sleep but keep the candle lit and we'll see you in the morning and I came out of the hole to, out the snow hole and I could just see that our tent um it was like a a blow for about five minutes and suddenly it cleared and I could see the tent and I just went for for the for our staff tent as Sundeep came out the tent and he said I just looked white as snow I, I looked visibly shocked and uh, I literally I was, I was I was scared I was gonna have to dig out for for the students and then the, um, the following day we sort of ex told them what happened and the, and the Norwegian was up there Canutti was like, oh, yeah, they'd be fine. They'd be fine, okay. Last night, the snow, it's so light and fluffy. Lots of oxygen in the snow. No problems. And I was just like, no, last night, it was a, to me, it was, it was the end of the world. But uh, the Norwegian on the ground, 
ex-military was like, yeah, this is, this is okay. These things happen. Nothing to worry about. So, yeah. Oh, gosh. We yeah. haven't had... Yeah. I, can't, I don't think we've had any. I think how many seasons you and I have done in Antarctica. And I have had no profound hypothermias without trauma. No. Except no. when alcohol has been involved. Yeah, and then, yeah, it's in alcohol where they've... Um, They've the, gone into the pilot's tent and they've, and they've been lulled in and they've got absolutely hammered and they've fallen unconscious in the middle of camp. Or one lad, he thought he was in his tent, but actually he was oh, in yeah. the foyer of his tent. Yeah. And he felt sick in the night, so he opened his tent and vomited inside of his tent and closed it and fell asleep again outside. But oh, they, we did have uh, one guy who really was uh, quite unwell. I think he was probably moderate, moderately to severely hypothermic. And he got, we, we carry, or in those days, used to carry this uh, thing called a, a heat pack or a Nortec, which is just, you know, when your granny used to play bowls, she'd have this little charcoal burner that she'd pop in her pocket. Maybe it's a Geordie thing. Anyway. No, no, they're the, no, the best hand so warmers. These, these Norwegian there. things are like, yeah. you know, they're like your granny's hand warmer, but, you know, they're on steroids. So they're probably about that big. You stick this huge charcoal block on and you light it and you think it's going to blow up and you quickly close the lid on it. Yeah, you know, the advice is do not use it in an enclosed space, obviously, otherwise you'll all die of carbon monoxide poisoning. But if you can vent this thing, they are absolutely fantastic. You stick them on the chest with something underneath it and the amount of heat that these things give off. So he got, uh, he was sort of at the bottom end of the lower sort of cognitive function. He was definitely in the stumbles, fumbles, mumbles and grumbles. We had to carry him. And he was starting to feel a little bit on the, on the rigid side. You know, the, uh, there was a tiny bit of cogwheeling to his, to his muscle movement. And we, had, we warmed up fluid. Um, we, we stuck the heat pack on him. We didn't have to get an airway on him. Uh, but it took probably about six hours for that guy to come around. He was touch and go whether we were going to evacuate him. There was one a couple of years ago wasn't there? In, in Russia. Someone got out, went out in the cold drinking loads and loads of vodka. <clears throat> and then been in the in the papers, and he was pronounced dead. And the um and the, his all his mates were the following or a couple of days later having this big sort of sort of celebrating his life, and he'd he'd woken up, he'd come round in the hospital. So some doctor pronounced him dead, and that was it. He came round and he turned up at his his mate's house about a couple of days later to find all his mates like get pissed and do it again. <laughs> and they were all like, and he walked in. And they're like, what are you doing? You would, you were, what were you all drinking for? He's like, you, we thought you were dead. And he just did. He drank that much alcohol and he'd been out in the snow, cold. Yeah, and it, it, made, it made the UK sort of Sunday, <laughs> something like that. We had a girl on a, on a trip in Norway. We were dog sledding from one side to the other and it, was, it got dark. And it was uh, the weather was shocking. He was sort of having a break trail at the front with the dogs, and this girl was at the back. And we got to the next RV, and then she just didn't turn up. And we waited, and then we couldn't see any lights, you know. And it's it's really quite hard to turn these dogs around and go all the way back again. But we turned around, went back, and she must have had a fit, we think, on the on the um, the dog sled and just fallen off the back because we found the dogs. They found the team and then we found her and she was moderately hypothermic when we got to her. I had to dig a snow hole. And of course, I'd, there was there was no way of putting any other shelter up 
in the snow hole. I didn't want to stick the heat pack on and I couldn't think of a way of getting it vented. So we, we had we had reindeer skins down on the bottom. One of the lads had dug this thing. He must have been, he was, must have been like an, a, a tractor, the speed that he dug it. Because I seemed to, I, I was looking after her and then I turned around and there was a hole dug. And then the next minute, Patora had thrown all these reindeer skins in. And then about 30 seconds after that, she's inside of there. And there's about four of us in there trying to warm her up. And then suddenly, all the dogs just start coming in. And Patora's lobbing <laughs> all of these dogs into us. And we had them all underneath the reindeer skins. It was fantastic. It was just like big hot water bottles, except every so often they'd become really hypoxic. And you could hear them hyperventilating. It was like someone chain stoking. You'd let a bit of air in, they'd go. <gasps> and then you'd cover it up again. And they'd just... <laughs> and then the norwegians brought out this pod which was heated like a yeah they've obviously done it before with on a snowmobile to put this girl in but yeah not well fantastic gosh gosh john could you just could you just talk to speak to um there's this weird um in the final stages of hypothermia now your notion towards so this, you know, these weird pathologies as people get profoundly cold. But could you just speak to um, this paradoxical undressing in the final stages of extreme hypothermia? Sort of why it happens and, and why it become it, it can be a sort of a common finding. I don't think it's that unusual to be honest. It is the it's in moderate hypothermia, stumble fumbles, mumbles and grumbles. It's the the change in cognitive function and then altered behaviour. It's actually yeah. really quite common. So people, people will, they start to, it's just like being really drunk. If you imagine yeah. your mates out and you're trying to get him to put his jacket on as you're leaving the house and he doesn't want to because he doesn't think that it's that cold. And then when you, you try to, you, you're forced him to put his jacket on, he then can't put his jacket up and he can't really talk because he's dysarthric. It is exactly like that with hypothermia. If you've ever been hypothermic, it's actually quite comical, especially if you become rapidly hypothermic, which happens with cold water immersion. Um, dysarthria comes on really quickly. Uh, and you sort of get what I'm meant to be saying. <laughs> and, you know, you just, everything seems to slow down. So that's in that, it's actually in the moderate hypothermia phase. So it's, it's, it's a, it, it is a precursor to somebody becoming severely hypothermic, but I think you're a bit away. If you've got somebody who's behaving irrationally, you can get some hot drinks inside of them and calm them down and you know, get them into a bit of shelter. I think probably one of the, the interesting bits that, that uh, people talk about but don't maybe understand is the concept of afterdrop, mm. which, which definitely is a you know it, it can be minor and you might only get half a degree or a degree of drop but it can be really quite significant if you see people with after drops of five to six degrees which means that you're gonna you're gonna take somebody who's moderately hypothermic and potentially you're gonna get um uh, cardiac arrhythmias and the driving force behind it really is um is your peripheral thermoreceptors so, and it almost always happens at the phase at which somebody is rescued um, and they either, whether the stress response changes and hence that has an impact on your autonomic response, plus or minus the cold, your, your peripheries are still cold, but because you're putting warm uh, clothing on these individuals, 
their thermoreceptors suddenly start to think that's actually really quite warm. But you might have hands like pieces of cold meat. You start to to perfuse this tissue, which is really cold, and then that takes the cold blood back into the the core again. And that's when you know. It, it, so we now recommend that uh, at a rescue phase, you start to warm somebody up. Uh, unless you need to move them, then don't move them. You know, that initial rescue, it often takes half an hour to get all of your stuff together and get everyone together anyway. Get the kiss you up, get it nice and warm, get some hot drinks in them. Don't allow them to do activity at that point because it'll increase convection, it'll increase muscle activity. You'll push blood into the cold peripheries, you'll drop your temperature. Uh, and we used to see this. So, it, you know, going back to my study days when I was at university, when I was doing my MSc, yeah, we used to get them out and warm them up and give them hot drinks. And then a couple of them said, is it all right if I do some exercise? And we were monitoring their core temperature with a rectal probe at this stage. And you just see their temperatures drop, you know, sometimes two or two and a half degrees. As soon as they got active, start doing burpees and star jumps, off, off it went. And we only had ethical approval to go down to 35. And these people were suddenly dropping down to 33 and a half. You think, oh my God, <laughs> stop exercising now. <laughs> so you need to warm them up before you then start to get them active. I think from a, a, so a search and rescue point of view, again, with the paradoxical undressing, you'll often find like a mitt that a person's dropped it, but can't be bothered to pick it up. So you, you sort of mark it on a map or take a grid reference of where it is. And then you maybe another 50 meters up in direction, you might find something else where they've, where they've dropped another glove. And, it, and then they might, have, they might find a hat or a, a pair of goggles and it's all leading in the direction of roughly where this sort of individual will be. But we've all seen that sort of, like Sean said before, you, you, you give them a coat and they just take it off and they throw it away. And you try and you, you, you've got to be, like I say, assertive and, and, and you're putting it on and zipping it up, zipping it up for them. That's why you always carry a roll of gaffer tape in your bag. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's a there's, joke, a, there's, a, there's a few things like on the market um, by Blizzard, who are in North Wales. They make a, a, a jacket, which is a, a very, again, it's a very quick win. And, and then because of the COVID, when the, the rescue teams are, you, you don't want to hand your own kit out um, because you then got to get it all washed and um and so we're, we're, we've all been issued a uh, a blizzard jacket so instead of handing your kit out to someone else you just put one of these things on them and again the windproof the waterproof and the insides are like a honeycomb layering of tin foil um so usually your tin foil blankets are great for wrapping up turkey to keep it cold or keep the turkey warm but actually you've got to be generating heat for that tin foil blanket to work where there's something slightly different about these foil jackets by Blizzard that they are just absolutely fantastic. Do they have chemical bags in them as well? You can put, you can add add chemical bags to them, but they they, they just make um, they're just like a big huge poncho, um, and they're just absolutely superb. And they they say they're cheap, they're simple, and they're an immediate uh, sort of game changer, um, and to come in. It's like one size fits all, um, but just an absolute fantastic bit of kit. So a group shelter and a blizzard um, jacket or a couple of blizzard jackets 
Um, and you're, you're uh, I think you're on, on a winner. I mean, we've been working with the uh, Blizzard guys for, it must be 10 or even 15 years now. And their kit, I mean, I'm sure there are other providers, but the Blizzard bags, we've been using them for years. Yeah. They, you know, they are, they're excellent. Uh, and, you know, it's the first thing that, you know, you, you're, you're going to do is to actually stick your casualty on top of the Blizzard bag and then stick the, the heat bags inside with them before you then start wrapping them all up. They're excellent pieces of kit. That's fantastic. So just just to come into land on a few points, really, um, a question to Ben and then and then to Sean. Actually, what are some of the mi common misperceptions about about hypothermia and and about management of hypothermia? And could you maybe also weave a story in there to where you've seen minor oversights? So I'm thinking about the thumb example, Ben, where there was that that there was a thumb injury which was ended up being trip ending, but the um, but if you could just maybe look at misconceptions and then minor oversights as well, um, both of you, maybe Ben initially, um, just to, just just to give examples of how you've really got to pay attention to the details and also look at the stuff that works rather than stuff that doesn't. Um, some of the minor um, misconceptions of how to treat people with hypothermia. Let me think. Um, like Sean said before, like just walk it off, get exercise again. It's an it's an it's a no no unless it is very simple. Can you stop shivering? Yes, I can. Wet take wet layers off, cold layers on, hat mitts. Let's and you see that vehicle down there. That's where we're going to go. Let's go. Um, but in general, I say someone's taken a long time to become hypothermic, so you've got a long time to, to make them back to normal. So I would say if it's a rapid cooling. It's a rapid warming, it's a, it's a slow cooling, it's a slow warming. Um, and so getting someone to exercise is, is wrong unless it is mild. And, at the, and when I say mild, we're talking at the top end of mild. Um, alcohol and, and smoking, um, again, there's always that sort of picture of the, 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 the big uh, Swiss um, some burned dog with a big barrel of brandy underneath it. And again, as we know, alcohol is a um, vasodilator and uh, the, it, all that lovely warmth from, this, from, the, from the core will just get sort of pushed out. Um, and again, that'll help cool you down quicker. Uh, the old James Bond, sort of two people in a sleeping bag. Ah, hello, I'm Bond. Let us warm up in a sleeping bag together. Just like you're, you've got someone's cold and you're just going to, you need to, you need to keep your warmth and look after that person. Now, I know I keep on going back to this book, Ken Gorm, John, um, A Life in Mountain Rescue uh, by Richie Perry. And in, in amongst that book, he talks of a, uh, a German uh, chap. And he comes to the Cairngorms with his, with his children and they get stuck out in a storm. Um, and his dad goes for help. The, the, the family ended up getting split up, I think. And the rescue team arrived to find this, the, the, the boy, age 12, I think, alive. And the, the, the girl um, dead. However, because she's young, eight, 10, something like that, there was this, we must do everything we can to, to save this person. And there's talk in the book of people, of one of the mountain rescuers lying underneath the body, 
while they're doing CPR on top to try and just move the warmth from him through through to her. Um, again, the don't feed the patient. There's, there's, again, it's, there's always this thing about you mustn't feed someone if they're going to end up in, in hospital um, because they might not have, a, they might be going for an anesthetic. And again, if these anesthetics don't happen quickly. And if they do, it's an R, as we know, it's an RSI and things are, things are managed. Five days to get a trauma list now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you get in the hospital, you got to go through the door that takes you a day and a half. Yeah. So giving something, someone <laughs> something to drink is a, is a good thing. As we talked before, lots of calories. Um, people think that your patient will warm up quickly and they don't. They don't. These, these things that like we said, it's a slow cooling. It's a slow warming. It's not a very quick, um, a quick change. Um, and, and again, these tinfoil blankets, putting someone in a tinfoil blanket, they're just, they're good for keeping the, 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 the wind off and the rain off. But if that person's not producing any heat, that tinfoil blanket is not going to do uh, any, anything, anything at all. Um, and then it said, you mentioned the thumb and an, an oversight. That's more of a, that was a cold injury. That was a, a frostbite. Um, and that was a, a guy who um, was slow moving. He was the eldest in a, in a, in a group going up Mount Vincent. Um, and he had a problem with his binding and he had a, a, a he got his pen knife out to try and adjust the screw, I think. And his pen knife didn't have a locking mechanism on it. And as he's trying to adjust the binding, the, the pen knife blade flipped over, hit the end of his thumb, cut his thumb. And um, instead of addressing the problem there and then by sticking like a, a couple of quid ambulance dressing on it or saying to his guide, I've cut my thumb, I need to stop it bleeding. He, he was worried about the group dynamics. He was at the back. He was the oldest member. He was slowing everyone down. Um, so basically just wrapped it in a handkerchief and stuck it inside of his mitt and it was a down mitt. So that he didn't stop, the, the bleeding didn't stop. His handkerchief got, got wet um, and then the, the, the glove, the down glove started absorbing some of the, the, the moisture from the, obviously the blood. And obviously the down lost its insulation and just froze. So he ended up with a, a frozen thumb basically and produced this sort of white thumb at the next base camp. Um, which ended up, it was a, that was it. That was the end of the, the trip for him. Um, more so that someone tried to, to suture the laceration closed when it was clearly frostbitten and, and frozen. And um, obviously when you, when you do your, when you're med school or nursing college and you do your suture and you never use, you never use a frozen product, do you? It's always a bit of a, you go for the, the soft bit of chicken or the soft bit of sponge to suture, not, uh, not the, uh, the frozen Richmond sausage. So yeah, that was a bit of an oversight and in, in, in frostbite. Um, and then he, for him, it was the, it, it, that was the end of trip. And he, he was back down to, for, for, for sort of frostbite treatment. Um, but that is the most common uh, frostbitten digit, isn't it? Especially yeah, in, yeah. in Brits, because they all ski like Bambi and they're gripping their poles really tight. And they also go for thumb loops on um, that, that, that thumb loops that are, are not a clothing, not thermals. And if they're too tight, they are cutting circulation. 
circulation off to, to the thumb. So it's making sure things like rings um, and, and, and clothing is nice and loose. Uh, and then having a layering system really in your gloves, a thin glove, a thicker glove than a mitt. Um, you never take off your thin glove because that is what you're going to be touching metal with, or you need to be able to use a camera with that thin glove. And, and, it, and that goes back to not leaving your house. If, you, if, you, if those are your glove choices for your expedition or your trip, and you can't use your iPhone in your house with the glove on, then that's not, that, that glove's not going on the trip. So you end up with like me, you have a house, you've got several boxes full of gloves over the years. Attic Boeing under the weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day it's going to come through into your bedroom. Yeah. And so, so yeah, you, you end up having a bit of a glove fetish. You're always like trying to get the, the right glove for the right trip. Were you there the year that those, I'll not say where they're from, because it'll give the game away. Two lads from a country that had not been to South Pole before. And we had them in a tent and they came in and I'll not do their accent either because I'll give the game away as well. And they came in with the clothing that they were going to wear. And it, I, honestly, I would probably I'd go for a run in that on a warm to cold day. It was a really thin layer of, of uh, like buffalo material. And they had these they'd had these all in one suits made for them. And we all looked at it and went, well, you're going to be really cold in that. And like, no, we're going to be generating loads of heat we're going to be working really hard yeah but you're going to be really cold in that you're going to get frostbite no we'll be absolutely yeah. fine we went on half an hour off they went 14 days they yeah. spent in their tent <laughs> it was so close to where we were i used to run out with with marco the meteorologist and see yeah. if we were all right and then run back again <laughs> i mean if you look at you go back to some of the antarctic books and you see the one of mike stroud and and finds and they buried their down clothing, didn't they, very early on in one of their expeditions because they were so warm that when they, when they left, the, I think it was at Hercule Inlet, and they were skiing to the pole, and it was it was very warm. So they thought, right, we'll get rid of some weight. And they they just dug a pit and stuck their down jackets and salopettes in, in the pit and carried on skiing. And obviously, as you, as you leave and climb up to the South Pole, which is at altitude, and the winds get stronger and and gets colder he then suffered and, and i think did mike stroud talks quite severely of him just basically waking up inside the tent um and because fines had, had found him collapsed and built put the tent up around him um, and put him inside and then spending a couple of days just sort of gathering thoughts that's a, that's a great way of getting somebody else to put the tent up and cook your food, isn't it? <laughs> I'll just collapse at the end of every day. Oh, I'm too tired. Put the tent up. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, and Sean doesn't know this, but I, I visited Patagonia, it must have been a couple of years ago now, with a few mutual friends of both Ben and Sean's, and actually ended up, it was summertime in Patagonia, ended up living, and Sean doesn't know this, in Sean's um, borrowed, or, or our mutual colleague borrowed Sean's thermals, which he promptly passed on to me because I thought, Patagonia in the summer, it's going to be, it's yeah. balmy, it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah. And sure enough, one of, one of the days was, was 28, even maybe 30 degrees. The next day was was like four degrees with a minus two wind chill or something ridiculous. It was absolutely 
freezing. And I think it's because it's the first significant landmass from the from the Arctic plateau. If the wind is in, the, in that direction and it blows it blows northbound from the Arctic, it's the first significant Antarctic. From the Antarctic. Ant Antarctic yeah. You've given the game away yeah. now though. Have you got my Ulfrot underwear? <laughs> I don't know if I still do. <laughs> I think but I might do. <laughs> I might even still be wearing it. I spent it. 60 days in that without taking it off. <laughs> I'm surprised you're still alive, mate, to be honest. If you it's wore that grown, stuff. It's probably grown legs. It probably has walked off by itself. It's some of the best kit going. You look at sort of oh. what, the, what the Norwegians and the Swedish travel in and, and exploring. That's the kit you want. Um, and Yulfrot, or there's the Norwegian stuff that um, I'll, I've been I'll be banned from wearing it. If I go on it on skiing holidays with my uh, Norwegian Brynje sort of fishnet <laughs> sort of thermals, <laughs> the kids just like they, just, they said, Dad, we're going on skiing holiday, um, we're going through your kit to make sure that you're not wearing those. And they are, it's just like a string vest and a string. Long John's, you but get some really yeah. nice fishnet stockings. Yeah, fishnet stockings, and it's, it's the warmest kit, <laughs> the warmest thermals you'll ever buy. That and Yulfrot, or it's now called Wool Power. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's. it's um, and the, the, see, I'm going to have to buy another pair because I know that I'll never get them back. Yeah, the, I still have. I still haven't got my kit back from Roger. He's still got <laughs> from that trip. You still got your kit, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I had to peel it off me because I was I was living in it for like fourteen days. Sixty-two days, mate. I didn't take that stuff off for. There's, oh, Russian, there's some Russian gear called Basque, yeah. which is uh, it's slightly more uh, fashionable, but equally as um, they've really thought about the the kit. It's fantastic stuff. I borrowed that off somebody as well, and was didn't really want to give it back to them, but had to. It's a mega warm stuff. It's now say it's called Wool Power, and I think there's a there's a UK outlet um, for it. I'll send you that, Sean. Yeah. Um, I think it, there's a, there's a couple of messages that I think that we have probably haven't covered. Is I think um, warm and dead. I think uh, I think you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Actually, is is unless you know they've got significant trauma or uh, you're going to resuscitate them and it's going to put you at risk um i think if somebody is is severely or profoundly hypothermic you need to think about ecls so if you're going to be seeing guys sorry i, I got a bit serious now i just realized what time it was so i moved away from fishnet stockings <laughs> and in front underwear um so you need you need to understand where your ECLS is, wherever you're going to be operating. That's going to be what is going to save the life. Uh, and there's if if anyone hasn't seen it, you know, looking at the uh, Anna Bogenholm's, Anna, is it Bagenholm? Bagenholm. Bagenholm. Bagenholm the yeah. video of her rescue and Matt Gilbert's uh, description of what went on in ED definitely worth watching. You know, it, that is that takes you through pretty much the whole process that you need to know about managing somebody with uh, profound hypothermia and what you can come back from i think if you uh kevin fong's book life in the extremes there's a fantastic chapter on that and then if you go on onto google onto youtube um and watch it and you've got kevin fong is is flying up in that part of norway in a in a, in a sea king talking about what what went on 
and then and, and in interviews Anna and her now husband um, about the, about those the, those events because she dropped the temperature to thirteen point seven. Yeah, Gosh. Um, I mean she was under the water um, for sixty minutes, maybe more, before they could actually get her out. But if you cool somebody that rapidly, I mean, there's a there's this paradox, isn't there? If you know that you're going to die, then actually the best thing to do is to suck up that water as quickly as possible. Because what you want to do is shut everything down as fast as you can. Because once your brain is at zero or one, it really is going to be losing so little oxygen. But if you can turn it all off really quickly, and I think that's what water does. You know, if, if you... If you drop yourself into water, which is as cold as you know the glacial water which she was in at Vix Renson, then it's you will you will you you'll drop your core temperature really quickly. So we had a, a scenario in the last sort of ten years at work where, yeah, about ten years ago, um, where we had a, a chap that had kind of was found in a, in a in a pond in in the back garden. And he was brought in. He was seen at a certain time having a cigarette next to the pond and then was found three hours later inside the pond. Um, and he was brought in, in and, and CPR already started. Um, it, we, he was tubed by the, the paramedics. And one of the, the, the consultants took a, a very early sort of blood sample and uh, sent it off and... I was very much of this, the school I thought you're not dead until you're warm and dead. And this consultant said to me, well, the person's dead anyway. And I was like, no, they're not. They're, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. And we need to warm them up to more than sort of 30, 30 degrees. Um, because obviously any drugs that are just being pooled inside them, you can't shock anyone at that level. Um, so they're not, for me, we're not, we're not dead until we're warm and dead. And, this sort of discussion went on and obviously you're working as an ALS team and this consultant acknowledged that my, my mountain rescue background and my Antarctic experience, polar medicine, that he knew where I was coming from. However, I wasn't aware of this sort of the, the new potassium um, and, it, died. And, and died and basically the, the consultant had taken the, taken the blood results and said, oh, the, the potassium's this. And I, I, I couldn't get into my head. And I was like, no, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. And he was like, no, Ben, this is, this is the result. You're not coming back from this. Yeah. He says, I understand. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to continue. And this is where the ALS and knowing your team and discussing it with your team and the group factors, human dynamics and all those types of things. He said, he said, so, so Ben, I know exactly where you're coming from. I acknowledge who you are. I acknowledge your experience and your background knowledge. However, we are just going to step to one side and we're going to have this conversation about potassium and I'm going to listen to your argument. However, I know my argument is going to win, but I need to get that across to you. Um, so we're going to continue the CPR and uh, the warming methods and we'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to it. And once I'd grasped the whole this potassium thing, I was quite happy to then say, as a team, we are stopping CPR, but until then, again, it, it, we just needed to to continue until we're all happy, and that's where that sort of question goes with with sort of uh, in these sort of situations. Are we all happy? Anyone got anything to say? And if some, put your hand up. Doesn't matter who you are. 
put your hand up and say, I'm not happy, say the reasons why, step away, continue doing what we're doing, because it's going to do no harm at the end of the day, discuss it and then come back and say, everyone happy to end. And by that point, I was happy that we weren't going to go anywhere. But it just took a that's a fantastic place to, uh, to, to leave off, actually. Just having that plenary discussion, having a consensus opinion. And I think you can extrapolate that anywhere, actually, Ben, you know, any, to any extreme environment. If you're unsure, make sure, not, not necessarily universal agreement, but just get everyone's opinion. Am I missing anything? The key fundamental question is, am I missing anything as the, as the team leader? And, and getting a consensus opinion from stepping outside your own fundamental biases and asking other people. And I think that is, that's a great place to land the conversation really, because I think that can, you can then start to cover off your own fundamental biases and, and, your, and, your, and your blind sides from, from, from that space. I'm mindful of the time. I'm, I've, I've got, got one on last time. point. I've got one last point, <laughs> especially for all you gentlemen out there. And we get it every year in Antarctica, don't we? We get oh, yeah. we get polar penis every year, and we question how it is not possible to put your willy away when you've finished having a wee. But I understand that you're a bit hypothermic and you're fumbling, and you've got multiple layers to put your knob away. But people still always, every year, they leave it out, don't they? And we get this panicked radio call. I love you, Willie, out. It's frozen on the end. It's gone black. <laughs> it was only a... Get your mate, just pop it in his mouth, just for five minutes. What? What? <laughs> it, was, it was a couple of years ago when Spear 17 team went down. You know, Lou, Lou Rudd's team. And one of their lads got it. Who? Um, you tell me afterwards. I'll tell you afterwards. One of their, <laughs> one of their lads got it, and it, it, it and the obviously they did the blog, and someone from the Sun picked it up, picked up this this polar penis thing, and uh, got in touch with Wem down at Exeter, and uh, and Nick put them on to me, so I had to phone this woman up from the Sun. And I said, hey, it's uh, Ben Cooper from World Extreme Medicine. I've, I've come to talk to you about penises. And she was just like, what? what are you I said, yeah, I believe you've been following the blog of the, the, the uh, Spear 17 team and you want to know a bit about polar penis. So we ended up having this discussion over the phone about it that she'd never, it's not documented anywhere. And um, I said, yeah, it's, 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 a re it's a real thing. Put it away. But yeah, put it away. But I think um, <laughs> in the, in the, you want that tattoo, don't you? Down there, you go. Remember to put me away when you're finished. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Obviously, Park. there'd be multiple lines of that. <laughs> you know the the, um, the the Welsh rugby player Richard Parks. He no. again, he suffered with it on one of his uh, trips that he was it was on TV, and he ended up he had a, um, a pair of quilted. Um, like pants, and he made himself like a black adder sort of. I don't know what they cod piece. Yeah, cod piece out of this sort of quilted area, and 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 that that sort of saved the day. So I think I'm mean, not Buffalo. Buffalo make a so Sheffield making... company. They make a, a Perdex and pile sort of little jock cod strap, piece. little cod piece. And I, I I often wear two pairs of thermals, a, a, a smaller pair. And like a, a pair of, of granddad long long johns. Well, we laugh, but there's a yeah. guy in Alaska called Black Ass Bill 
Yeah. Who left the, the back of his pants down when he was on his bike on the um on the Ditterod? Yeah, Ditterod. I did the sport. I just yeah, he's now called Black Ass Bill, and you can understand why. He lost half yeah. his half his buttocks fell off. Anyway, well, we shall end on that. Well, I'm going to end on that note. <laughs> no, just before we end, just before we end. I've got one more penis story. One oh, more. no, another penis story. <laughs> it's the whole thing of a lot of people spend money on the, on the outdoor kit. It's expensive. And they'll spend 500 quid on a North Face jacket, but they'll spend 20 quid on a set of thermals. And mm. it's your thermals that are next to your skin that are mm. going to make the difference. And then Andy Kirkpatrick, he, he's, he's a proper Jedi guru on clothing and equipment. Um, and in his blog, it was only last week in one of his blogs, he was saying about people, you need to spend a bit more money on the, the, the layers next to your skin that are going to wick away and pull away the moisture rather than on the big out there on the external layers that people see. They see the brand on the jacket. People don't see the, the, the thermal, and so they can be as cheap as you want. Yourself, but also, again, it's about spending the right money on the right bits of kit. And we talked about in the last blog about your fingers and your toes, but it's also about the stuff that's next to your body that's going to pull away the moisture and keep you keep you dry. I think that's a great place to end, actually, Ben, just, <laughs> just from a practical perspective. Spend the money on the pants. Well, hang on. Sorry, mate. You know, I was saying there's a DVD that um, yeah. iCar put together. That, yeah. So that is it. So it's called Time is Life. That's the one with the, um, with the young lad who um, was in the morgue. Um, okay. So definitely worth a look, actually. Right, don't show us any more of those DVDs in that shelf. <laughs> yes, the rest of them are activated. <laughs> leave, leave the rest of them. <laughs> uh, listen, if this ever makes production and people, listen, just, thank you both. Listen, thank you both for your time, and it's just an absolute treat to talk to you both because you're both absolute legends. So, um, you're actually Always stone cold, is what you are, but yeah, stay well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, likewise. Yeah, I'll definitely. You. And thank you, Owen, for that. It's great fun. Yeah, brilliant. That was my pleasure. It was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. I have to go and recalibrate your chuckle muscles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Yeah. Right, see you later. See you later. Cheers.